The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, hey, good morning, Fathom Church online. Uh, Good to have you again. If I have yet to meet you, my name is uh, Chris Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at Fathom. Uh, Just glad to be spending some time with you this morning. Without further ado, if you do have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please grab them, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can go online and Google search uh, for 1 Corinthians 6. We'll be studying out of the ESV uh, this morning. Uh, So 1 Corinthians 6 is where we're going to be. This is uh, the 15th week in this 1 Corinthians series, and we're going to finish up chapter 6 today. So you can kind of imagine how long this is going to take us to get through this whole book. Uh, but 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 in, in chapters uh, 6 and, and the next chapter, uh, chapter 7, we're going to be talking for the next few weeks about sex, uh, and specifically today, sexual Sin, and so I set that out in the email. I uh, hope you've got some, you know, earmuffs on your kids or, or whatever you you've kind of processed through. Uh, but but sexual sin. Let me just uh, right off the bat say this: uh, it it can bring with it, as we talk about sexual sin, uh, a lot of guilt and shame. Uh, because I think it's safe to say, I feel pretty confident in this. It is safe to say that every single one of us has some sort of sexual brokenness. We all do. So before we really get into 1 Corinthians 6, I wanted to mention uh, two things. First is this, uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if today you are in Christ, you are a believer in Christ, uh, and today you, as I'm talking, you're hearing whispers of condemnation, um, I would say those are not from the Father. Those are not from God. Condemnation comes from the enemy. It does not come from God. But back in uh, Romans chapter 2, we find out that that conviction is kindness uh, from God that leads us believers to repentance. So, So if you hear words of condemnation today, those are not from God. But if you feel pangs of conviction in your heart Conviction is actually a good gift from God through his spirit to the believer, beckoning us to repent, beckoning us to change the direction of our lives. Uh, So I just wanted to say that. And one other thing I want to say before we get into our text today is this. Sex is a good thing. It's a good thing. From from a biblical perspective, sex is not bad. Okay, sex is not dirty. Uh, Sex is not sin. Uh, In fact, this seems silly to even have to say, but who created sex? Yeah, it it was God. He came up with this thing. Man didn't come up with sex. All right, the the media didn't create sex. The sexual revolution didn't create sex. Playboy did not create sex, okay? God did, and it is a good gift from God. So you do realize that God could have come up with uh, any myriad of ways for us to procreate when he was creating. You know that, right? Like, Like we could have laid eggs, which would have been weird, right? That would have been a strange thing. Uh, we could have reproduced asexually like some plants and some animals do. 
Okay, uh, goodness, God could have just had your, your two earlobes start to swell up and then, boop, okay, there's twins. Like that's how he could have had these things happen, but that's not how he chose to create sex. He created sex for both procreation and recreation. He created how it feels. Have you thought about that? God created that. He created sex for us. It's a good gift, but... God created sex for a particular time and a particular circumstance. And the Bible is clear on this. Sex is for one man and one woman in one marriage. Period. No exceptions to that. One man, one woman, one marriage. We actually find this in Genesis chapter 2, which Paul will actually quote in our text uh, in 1 Corinthians 6 a little bit later. But let me just read this. First, uh, uh, Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25 say, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So, so back in Genesis 2, God creates sex, and it was good. And it was for one man and one woman in one marriage. And, and I just want to point out, notice this all happens before Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where sin enters the equation into the cosmos. Sin shatters relationships. Uh, we call that the fall. So, so I'll say this. Humans were sexual before we were sinful. That was in creation. In Genesis 2, sex is created. In Genesis 3, sin breaks a whole bunch of stuff. And perhaps the most important line in that Genesis 2 passage for our purposes today uh, is in verse 24 when it says, they shall become one flesh. See, see, what that means is that when a husband and a wife unite in marriage, they become one. Where, where one of them ends and the other begins, is it, it, it blurs. It becomes unknown. One plus one equals one in this case. And, and so in the Hebrew mind, in the, the minds of, uh, of the Hebrew people, two becoming one flesh was much more than just a physical reality. Uh, to quote uh, the president of Acts 29, Matt Chandler, uh, he calls this the mingling of souls. The mingling of souls, mind and body and spirit are united in sex. And that's why sex is such a powerful, powerful thing in our world. And that's why sex is only supposed to be had in marriage. Marriage is, uh, as it were, the only furnace that could contain the heat, the fire that is sex. It'll burn everything else down. And we've seen this historically. Now, what I've just said to you, what, what I've just said is this biblical sexual ethic. This is very unpopular, uh, but it is biblical. Very unpopular, but it's biblical. And this week I, I heard an interview with Tim Keller where he proposed that there are four uh, things that all biblical Christians, all biblical Christians should agree upon. These are the four things, and, and there's probably more, but these were the four he was talking about. One, a commitment to racial equality. 
all races equal before the sight of God. This is the Imago Dei. This is the image of God in all races, all people, all tribes, all tongues. So a commitment to racial equality, a commitment to being pro-life. Okay, third one, a commitment to care for those who are marginalized and on the fringes of our society. So a care for the marginalized. And fourth, a commitment to the biblical sexual ethic of one man and one woman in one marriage. Now, those four things were fascinating because two of those, uh, two of those things would be considered politically conservative, right? Pro-life and a traditional view on marriage. Those would be considered conservative if you're uh, talking politics. And two of those would be considered more liberal or more progressive uh, as, as we talk about racial reconciliation and racial uh, diversity. And secondarily, uh, the, the, the care for those who are uh, poor and marginalized in our midst. So I, I just want to note that we are not talking today about like a conservative viewpoint around sexuality or a liberal viewpoint around this. We're not talking about what's hip or what's cool or what's culturally relevant, rather what we are talking about is the biblical sexual ethic, what the Bible says about sex. And I think it should be universally agreed upon by Christians. So God created sex is a good gift for human beings to enjoy within the bounds of marriage. But as we all then know, sex can quickly and easily become corrupted. And that's what we're going to find out has happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to start at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, what, what Paul does at the beginning of this passage is he, he, he quotes two sayings used in the Corinthian culture and he comments on them. Okay. So you've seen the quotation marks in there in verses, uh, in verse 12. Uh, and, and Paul is simply implying that the Corinthian church had begun to like, uh, adopt these worldly views, uh, and, and started to use them as their own. So Paul's response to this is like, no, stop that. Okay. He says this, are all things lawful for me? No. He says, not all things are helpful. Are all things lawful for me? No, I will not be dominated by anything. So, so the, the, the problem that the Corinthians were facing is a problem a lot of Christians today face. And this is what I'll call the licentious attitude of, hey, I'm saved so I can just do whatever I want. Maybe not whatever I want, but, but certainly there's some things that God's okay with. Like, I'm saved, so God's going to forgive me. Like, I'm saved, so God's got to do that. I'm saved, so I'm free. I have license. I have liberty. But Paul's like, hey, no, 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 no. You are not free to sin. You are freed from sin. You're not free to sin. You're free from 
sin. And I see this all the time in response to legalism. I see Christians all the time who, who, who swing to the other side because they don't want to be considered a legalist or a fundamentalist. And so they swing to this opposite side where it's liberty and it's freedom and it's licentiousness. And for fear of being labeled a, a conservative or a legalist or a prude or irrelevant or whatever it might be, they've erred in not taking their behavior seriously. We've already addressed some of this in 1 Corinthians, but Paul, in this moment, he's saying, hey, all things are not helpful. Okay, I will not be dominated by anything. And then the second quote that Paul quotes uh, says this, uh, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, which is another kind of saying or idiom in Corinth that's basically saying this, hey, sex, it's just natural. It's just physical, right? It's like food. It's like drink. If you're thirsty, you get a drink. If you're hungry, you eat. And, And if you have sexual desires, well, it's just natural. It's just natural, so go for it. Go for it. And this thought was largely built on the Greek philosophical framework of the time called dualism. We call it dualism. It was kind of taught by uh, some of the scholars from before this time, uh, a guy like Plato, uh, Socrates, Aristotle. But Plato kind of was the one who framed this thing up uh, the most. And it believed uh, that dualism believes that the material world, everything that we can feel and see and sense, the material world, including sex, was just, just physical, It was not connected to the soul or the spirit or the spiritual. That that was separate. And so under Greek thought, sex was just physical. Okay? It's not spiritual at all. It was just physical, like food for the stomach. And hear me, our culture today, even Christians in our culture, uh, our culture is heavily influenced by Plato by Platonic thought. And goodness, Christians sometimes believe more like Plato than they do like Paul. All the time. You ever heard, hear stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, some stuff is spiritual. Yeah, I agree with that. But some stuff's not. Eating, drinking, like God doesn't care about that stuff. What God cares about is my heart. He cares about my spirit. He doesn't care about my physical stuff as much. You ever hear stuff like that? You ever believe stuff like that? Paul was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. And in the Hebrew mind, back to Genesis 2, which we already read, sex was two becoming one flesh. The mingling of souls, the physical and the spiritual were intimately connected. So he says in in verse 13, hey, the body, it's not meant for sexual immorality, but rather for the Lord. The body, your physical matters to God. Now, the Greek word for uh, sexual immorality here in our text is the word porneia, uh, which obviously sounds familiar, right? Like that's, that's where we get our word pornography. Um, but porneia uh, defined in the Greek is anything outside of Genesis 2 sexuality. Okay, anything outside of one man and one woman in one marriage is porneia. 
So for us, sleeping with a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance is pornea. Adultery, homosexuality, hookups, oral sex, actual pornography use, that's all pornea. That's all a distortion of the good gift that God gave us in sex. It's all, it's all Genesis 3, the fall. It's all Genesis 3 sex. It's not Genesis 2 sex. And it is all sin. So Paul's first point in this section is, is that the, Corinthi the Corinthians were being sexually immoral, porneia, and that they were trying to excuse it as merely physical. But he reminds them that all porneia, all sexual immorality is sin. On to verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Genesis 2, there's the quote. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, uh, prostitution is what's mentioned, and, and it is mentioned because that is the porneia of choice in Corinth at this time, okay? Uh, in that Corinthian culture, we've talked about this, they mixed sex into their Greek kind of cult religion. And so one way you would worship some of the Greek gods in the pantheon, especially Aphrodite, who had a temple in Corinth, was to have sex with these cult prostitutes. And so Paul, he is at this point kind of like upping the ante a bit, okay, in this rebuke. Uh, and and it's at, at first he was kind of just saying, hey, you're excusing this sexual sin by claiming it was just just physical. And he's starting to kind of like allude to this dualism thing. But now he attacks that dualism full on, like even more because he says, hey, your bodies, your bodies, if you're a Christian, you are members of Christ. Like he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So really it's one plus one plus one equals one. One man, one woman, one God. The spirit, one unity with God equals one marriage. Like that's, there's an, another one in the equation. And that's really ratcheting this up a notch because when he quotes Genesis 2, he says, hey, whenever two people have sex, Whenever two people have sex, they are becoming one flesh. And then you, if you go join yourself to a prostitute, become one flesh with a prostitute, that's crazy. You're already joined to Christ. You're like in some way dragging Christ to that prostitute as well. Here's what I think he's actually saying. Just like adultery is detrimental to marriage, so porneia is detrimental to your relationship with God. In adultery, you cheat on your spouse. In porneia, you cheat on your God. You are one spirit with the Lord. Don't go dragging him to a prostitute. So Paul is just like hammering that this is unbiblical to separate the physical from the spiritual. Dualism is not a biblical philosophy. And, and you see so many people think that we today are in this 
this, this state of enlightenment, like this enlightenment over the, the view of sex, that we are just kind of above that, that somehow in our modern, you know, enlightened framework, that we just have a higher view of sex than these, these Old and New Testament people. But I would argue that, goodness, the Bible actually has a much, much higher view of sex than our world does. In the world, sex is just physical. Like in our world, it's, sex is just physical. It's just two people in consensual adult people, uh, you know, exchanging fluids, right? Temporary pleasures, animalistic instincts, and a consumption to meet some sort of desire. That's sex to our world. But in the Bible, in God's word, sex is holy. It's holistic. It's integrated. It's worship. It's two becoming one. Like the Bible's view of sex is like a $200 Kobe beef steak cooked perfectly medium rare like Jesus would eat it, right? And, and our world's view on sex, it's like that microwave Salisbury steak dinner. It's just, it pales in comparison. Paul is saying, hey, don't cheapen sex down to this physical thing. Don't rob yourself of the good gift that God has blessed us with. Don't settle for that. And don't you dare drag Christ, the Holy Spirit who lives in you, into that. You're cheating on your God. He takes it really seriously, y'all. And then right on the tail of all this theology, okay, he kind of sets it all up with theology and philosophy and all this challenge. Paul then gives this black and white, no room for misinterpretation instruction on what Christians are to do with sexual immorality in verse 18. So this is what he says, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. That's uh, flee, flee, flee. That's what he says. Flee from sexual immorality. That's Greek for, hey, just run for your freaking life. Like get out of there. And flee and run are kind of synonymous, but kind of not because to flee is to run, but it's so much more. To flee is to escape peril. To flee, it's, it's it's like run for your life. If you don't run, you're a dead man standing. And as I think about it, I can't think of anywhere else in the Bible where we are told to flee from any sin. Like when it comes to temptation and even even the devil's schemes, we are told to stand firm and to fight that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We are told to stand firm, to mount up, to resist. And to my knowledge, porneia is the only sin in the Bible where God's instruction is for us to flee, to get away from it, to run rather than to stand our ground. Some of the scholars I read this week uh, think that Paul is probably alluding to the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife from Genesis 39, which we preached on a couple years ago. But um, it's where this young, uh, attractive slave, Joseph, had a coat at one point that was technicolored, if you follow that. Uh, but let, listen, he, he was enslaved. He was working in a house uh, under the, the man named Potiphar. And he's being kind of pursued by this like rather randy, you know, desperate housewife-esque Potiphar's 
wife, who, by the way, is never given a name in the text because I think she's uh, like an allegory for Potiphar's wives throughout history, for, for this temptress, uh, as we will see. But Joseph at one point finds himself alone with her in the house and she thrusts herself upon him. He flees. He runs, he, he escapes, and he even like leaves his outer garment because she grabs at him and he just, he flees to the point where he leaves his coat behind. He runs for his life. And, and for us, Fathom, we live in a culture just like Corinth. And God's call to the Corinthian church is the same call that he extends to us. Flee sexual immorality. Whatever porneia you may struggle with, the antidote is to run for your life. But a lot of times we don't flee. I've said this before. We don't flee, but we flirt. We flirt with sexual immorality and we justify it. We justify it to ourselves and to others. We say things like this is just lunch. Oh, he's just my work buddy. He understands me. Okay. He laughs at my jokes. He's just like my work husband. Listen, it was just a text. Hey, we were friends back in college and, and like I haven't talked to her in a, in a long time. So we're just going to catch up on Facebook. There's no harm. Or we'll say things like this. Hey, it's just a picture. It's just a video. It's just a magazine. It's just a website. They're not real. Hey, listen, um, some of y'all, you need to delete Potiphar's wife from your phone. Some of you need to stop watching videos of Potiphar's wife on the internet. Some of you need to block Potiphar's wife from your social media. Some of you need to stop going to the gym when you know Potiphar's wife will be there. And I don't listen, I don't know what the equivalent of Potiphar's wife is for gals. I mean, maybe, maybe it's Potiphar himself. I'm not sure whatever it is, but the message is the same. Hey, whether you're male or female, if you struggle with pornea, get out of there, flee, stop flirting, run away, get as far away as you possibly can. See, even Jesus, when he teaches on this uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches on lust and he says, hey, take whatever drastic measure necessary. If it's your eye that's causing you to sin, rip that thing out and throw it away. If it's your hand that's causing you to, to sin, cut off your hand. It's better to not have a hand than to be in the clutches of this sin. So, so here's how I would, I would describe that to us. Listen, if your phone causes you to sin, get a dumber phone. I mean, I don't know how we survived for thousands of years before the iPhone, but we did. It's better to, to flee sexual immorality than have a smartphone. Goodness, if your computer causes you to sin, get rid of it. Or if you cannot get rid of it, move it out of the office or the bedroom or wherever it is in secret and move it into the highest trafficked area of your house where all your family will be. Get it out in public. If you're way, listen, way too close with that guy or that gal at work, I'm serious about this. Quit. Find a new job. I know that this is a crazy time for jobs, but, but listen, no one talks about this, okay? But the whole Jim and Pam thing on the office, like that's super sketchy. She was engaged. That's so 
sketchy. And I'll tell you, it's easier, it's better to find a new job than to have your life ruined by sexual immorality. Martin Luther has a real famous quote uh, when, when asked how he dealt with the problem of lust or sexual immorality in his life. Uh, his reply is excellent. He said this, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. I would wager that some of y'all are letting birds make nests in your hair. And I just promise it will not end well. It will not end well. Flee. Do whatever it takes. That's how serious Paul is about this. And, and he'll even take it up a little bit higher as we finish our text. So let's go 18 through 20. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's what I think he's saying. Sexual sin is a unique sin. When you sin sexually, you damage the deepest part of your being. Why? Because what we've talked about, sex is meant to be a union between a husband and a wife, a mingling of souls, two becoming one, that sort of one flesh thing. And that puts sexual sin into a category of its own. You sin against, as Paul said, your own body, the very place that the Holy Spirit resides. Now, now, what does it mean when he says you sin against your own body? Because it seems to me that there are other ways to sin against my own body. But, but he, let me put it like this. I think this makes sense. If I were to sin with alcohol, you know, I just got, got drunk, got plastered. I'm not becoming one flesh with Jack Daniels, right? I mean, if I were to sin with food, the sin of gluttony, okay? I would not become one flesh with my Chipotle burrito. It's just different. Sexual sin is a unique sin. And now hear me, I personally know this all too well. Because just like I said at the beginning, we all have sexual brokenness. I have sexual brokenness. And of all my sin, of all of my sin that I've committed in my life, and listen, there's plenty, there's heap loads of that to get through. But of all my sins, my sexual sin is just in a different category. I mean, it just is. Like I can get over other things easier than I can get over sexual sin in my life. And listen, if I could go back and change one thing in my entire life, I would go back to every single moment where I sinned sexually and I would change every single one of those circumstances. Like all the other stuff I had done, my sin, it does, it bothers me. But sexual sin, it just bothers me at a whole different level. And it's, Somehow the ghosts from my sexual sin can still affect me to this day. Why is this so important? Why is this so important? Because sexual sin is unlike 
any other sin we can commit. Now, as we close up in this passage, there are really only two imperatives, like two instructions for us in this text. And the first one we covered in depth, flee sexual immorality. That's the first imperative. But the second is at the very end of the passage. And it says, glorify God in your body. Flee sexual temptation or flee sexual immorality and glorify God in your body. And I think that second imperative is important because it will never be enough to simply run from sexual sin. Because as you run from sin, you must run to something. And that's what I think he means in glorify God with your body. You run from sexual immorality and you run to God. And the the good news of the gospel is right there in the text is that you're not your own. You were bought with a price when you run from your sexual sin and you turn towards your heavenly father, you will run into his forgiveness, the forgiveness that God has for you. Remember back to what we talked about at the very beginning in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So listen, if you today, this morning, are caught in sexual sin, I'm just pleading with you. I'm inviting you. Come back to the place of mercy found in Christ. There's no condemnation for you. If you're feeling that conviction, turn, flee, run, run into the open arms of your father who welcomes you back as a son. Now hear me, if you are defiant, in your sexual sin. All things are lawful for me. I'm just warning you, you're playing with fire. You are playing with a dangerous, hot fire. But if you are battered and you're broken and you're weary over your sexual immorality, listen, Jesus welcomes you and will make you new church, flee sexual temptation. And as you run from it, you will find yourself running towards a God who is there and who is for you. He is the one, that, the only one to run to, to glorify. And listen, I, I, we don't have time for this this morning, but if you need help with this, if you need help with this, please reach out to us this week. If you're under the burden of sexual sin, it it would be our great joy to walk with you towards sexual purity. Honor Christ with your sexuality. Let me pray for us this morning. And Father, thank you for this this message. Thank you for this text. Thank you for um, the imperative to run, to flee sexual immorality. God, this is a a sin that I know every person deals with at some level. And so, Father, I pray your words of sweet, gifted correction and conviction would be heard in our hearts this morning. God, call us away from our sin. Call us to be more like you. Call us to run from and to run to your open arms today. I pray for boldness, for courage to put to death these sins in our 
lives. Lord, we love you. We bless you today in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.